The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So now how are we doing? <laughs> well, in the... Um, In the sequence of things, I'd like to talk a little bit about the path as as it appears in the uh, in the Dhammapada. And um, so we've got a number of a number of verses that are scattered throughout the book. So if you have a copy of the book and want to want to track down the the um, the verse numbers in the lower right-hand corner, and you can find your way. And if you don't have a copy of the book, that's what that is for. Inactive when one should be active, lazy though young and strong, disheartened in one's resolves. Such an indolent, lethargic person doesn't find the path of insight. And I find it interesting that Gill translates that as the path of insight because... <clears throat> some of the scholars that I've been reading prefer to translate the word panya, which is often translated as wisdom, as insight, or even as penetrating insight, um, because it's something, it, it's, it's less of a thing, it's something more like we do. And um, in this case here, it's the path of insight is not to be realized by one who is not actually undertaking it. It's an activity. Um, lazy though young and resolved, um, uh, young and strong. You know, when, we're, when people are young, we think the, uh, it's going to go on like this forever. <laughs> um, and so laziness happens. Disheartened in one's resolves, you know, there's a difference between a resolve and a wish that often is not noticed. So that you can wish to be awake, you can wish to lose weight, you can wish to quit smoking, you can wish all of these things, and you think that that's, you know, I'm going on a diet. You know, I wish I could go on a diet, or I wish I... But a wish is different than a resolve. A resolve actually is a decision that doesn't depend on what comes next. So I wish I could lose weight, but that doubt bar is hard to resist, particularly when it comes in a package of three. <laughs> they, they come in packages of three. Uh, so one finds oneself disheartened because one doesn't keep to them. I'm, often that's... Um, Maybe not so much wishes. But I think the path of insight is it's important. Um, path of insight released through right understanding. This is again, this is the um, the right understanding as the first element in the Eightfold Path. 
It's seeing things clearly from which your your um, uh, intention arises. Calm in mind, speech, and action, and released through right understanding. So the release comes through right understanding, through th- seeing things that they are. And and what's what's interesting? Such a person is fully at peace. And what's interesting is that understanding. Um, involves concepts and stories. It's it involves per, the 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 aggregate of perception, um, and so and yet, you know, when you know something, you, all you have is a concept. Right understanding is concepts, ideas, stories, um, and there's a. On the one hand, no story will free anyone because it has to do with whether or not you respond to it and how you understand it. On the other hand, without right understanding, you don't get free at all. So the understanding, the kind of teachings that are present in the, the, um, in the Dhammapada form the basis for understanding. So right insight the path of insight released through right understanding and the understanding that comes through the, the release of, of insight when you see clearly what's happening. Wisdom arises from spiritual practice. Without practice, it decays. Knowing this two-way path for gain and loss, conduct yourself so that wisdom grows. So in a way, the path of insight released through understanding and through spiritual practice. That's, in some ways, that, that's the heart of the path. It's a path of insight that, that grows through practice and through the understanding that comes through insight. Um, and it, it's, it's also interesting, the two-way path for gain and loss um, Wisdom arises from practice, and without practice, it decays. There are several places in in the uh, in the text where the Buddha makes the same point. I think we're going to come up against some of them later. But the idea is that if you're not um, if you're not working at it, you're going downstream. You know that that in in some ways everything. Uh, must be your practice. Or else, when you're not practicing, you're doing something besides the Dharma. So we're, we're talking about practice, which is just what you do. You know, it's, it's the activity that you're, that you're uh, engaging in. It's either, it's practice of some kind or another. And you can you could actually say that if you're doing a lot of catalog browsing, you're practicing the cultivation of desire. You know, so so I mean, you do practice that um, when you think about all the things that you want, the things that you want to do. You're you're cultivating the habit of um, longing for something in the future. Um, and so, you know, following the Dharma, living the Dharma, all of these kinds of things have to do just with, 
you know, busyness as, you know, with your activities as you go along. What, just what you're ha- what's happening. Um, living life in accord with the Dharma teachings is either happening or it's not. Would be the, the, the teaching of the Dhammapada. Glory grows for the, a person who is energetic and mindful, pure and considerate in action, restrained and vigilant, and who lives the Dharma. So, you know, you're starting to see the same themes showing up throughout. So energetic and mindful, we're going we're to spend some time on, on the effort required too, but restrained and vigilant and who lives the Dharma. That living the Dharma, practicing the Dharma, living the Dharma, it's, it's all following the Dharma, following the teachings. It's, all, it's just a matter of what you're spending your time doing. Um, practicing, living. What do you think it means by glory? Not necessarily fame, not renown, but just, what do you think? It's the ecstatic experience of living in accord with the, with the Dharma. The bliss of blamelessness, energetic and mindful, energetic, constantly applying your effort, not lazy. As you contrast that lazy and energetic throughout, you know, it shows up in a lot of places. Does it, it would seem to me that glory corresponds with reputation? It could be, but it could be even, even glory in your, without anybody being aware except for you. It's just glorious to live in accord with the Dharma for yourself. Peaceful, joyful, not um, you know, certainly recognition, but maybe not necessarily. Maybe even in the absence of, of uh, you know, what others do or do not do is not of concern. So whether they recognize me or not, do not be concerned with what others do or what they do not do. Just be concerned with what you do. So the glory would have to do, even if people aren't recognizing you. This little sequence is interesting. It's from, um, I think it's from the chapter on flowers, uh, which, is, which is organized just around the, the notion of flowers. So the, the uh, flowers can be there, it's used in many different ways in this um, uh, in this particular chapter. Um, death sweeps away the person obsessed with gathering flowers. We looked at that one um, as a, a similar a similar verse. Um, as a great flood sweeps away a sleeping village, the person obsessed with gathering flowers, insatiable for sense pleasures, is under the sway of death. That's the one we looked at. As a bee gathers nectar and moves on without harming the flower, its color, or its fragrance, just so should a sage walk through a village, 
our walk through life. That's an interesting image for, you know, moving from one, one point to another, one person to another, a situation to another, without harming the flower, its color, or its fragrance. Not obsessed with gathering the flowers. This is, you know, an interesting image of how to walk the path. You know, it's not described as effortful or burdensome. It's like a bee going from flower to flower. That's an interesting image for how to, how, how to live. Without becoming attached, without being saying, this is my flower, <laughs> this is my bush. Um, and maintaining the integrity of one's, it's, it, you know, that verse about what others do or do not do, um, moving through appropriately. Um, I just think it's, it's an interesting image of, of the path. The way to material gain is one thing. The path to nirvana is another. Knowing this, a monk who is the Buddha's disciple should not, cultivate, should not delight in being venerated, but cultivate solitude instead. So when we were talking about, in the Gautami Sutta, we were, we were looking at um, seclusion. Yeah, let me... in there somewhere. Contentment, seclusion, persistent versus lazy. The path to material gain is one thing and the path to nirvana is another. Can we distinguish those? Can we really separate those? I think that's 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 really um, it's hard to imagine action not in the world. You know, there's a there's a tradition. Uh, I know that um, it's not limited to one religious tradition, or not, but there's the the phrase about being in the world but not of it. Um, it's kind it's kind of hard to not be. It's it's very difficult. What does it mean? What does that mean to be not of the world? Because all of what goes on in your mind has to do with most of it, with images of the world, our experience in the world. The way to material gain is one thing. So what's going on here is there's, even though the world is the same, our relationship to it may be different. So when you say nibbana is samsara, or nirvana is samsara, which is the uh, the Mahayana, uh, actually that, that came out of Nagarjuna, the Mahayana uh, Madhyamaka school. The the experience, the world is the same, but it's related to differently. You know, the experience is different, even though the world is the same. 
So knowing that the path to material gain is different from the path to nirvana, the monk should not should cultivate solitude, disentanglement, and delight in, not delight in being venerated. You know, there's a the Buddha talks about the the conditions for teaching the Dharma. There are five conditions that he mentions for teaching the Dharma, and some of them are technical. The first the first couple are you should teach a graduated discourse. The second one is that it should be logically constructed. Um, and it should be done uh, out of kindness, without disparaging oneself and others, and not as a basis for material gain, not as a basis of livelihood. Because it'll tend to, and one should not delight in being venerated. So in a way, that glory and fame, well, fame and disregard, fame and disrepute as, a, as one of the... Uh, Worldly dharmas, those are distractions. And it, it, doesn't get, uh, it doesn't get much more much more stark than that. The way to material gain is one thing, and the path to liberation. So the question then is, do you, again, do you want upgraded samsara, or do you want liberation? And and how does how do you, how do you bring that to um, to your practice? One other thing about the path these these two elements are interesting because there's there's often talk about skillful means which which are used to describe things that don't seem so skillful, um, but this is a this is a, a person who would not wish for success by unethical, who would not wish for success by unethical means, not for the sake of others, not for the sake of oneself, not with hopes for children, wealth, or kingdom, is a person of virtue, insight, and truth. Those who seek their own happiness by causing the suffering, by causing suffering for others, are entangled with hostility. From hostility, they are not set free. So actually. The path is, you know, ends don't justify means. You know, there's no happiness. There's, it's not the path when, when it's filled with remorse, when there's remorse in the wake. So I think this is, this is an, an issue about um, the path not being purely instrumental. The path is the goal. So the Eightfold Path is not only the path to the cessation of suffering, but it's the way you would live if you were free from suffering. So living the path, the path and the goal are the same. And that's the same, that's the way you construct Highway 80, or I-80. It's the new, the new habit that we develop. But we can, we can justify all kinds of things, and we were talking this morning, the, the person who was here who was bringing up the issues of social justice and and stuff so you know if you would if you were acting for the sake of others or for hopes for your children and behaving unethically buddha was is pretty clear here that's not that's not the path itself 
It's not instrumental. The path is the goal. I'm sorry? So Google's a bad guy. Google? How, how do you mean? Well, judging others is what others do or do not do. You know, what they have done or have not done. That verse 50 is just really, really useful. I, I tend to recite what others do or do not do mostly, but do not consider the faults of others or what they have or haven't done. Consider rather what you yourself have or haven't done. So I just think the fact that the path is not instrumental is huge. So you fulfill the path just by doing it. That's right. What you're doing at any time is the path that you're that you're taking and the path that you're cultivating. So if you're cultivating anger by you know watching the news and getting angry at the people that you get angry at when you watch the news, I know who those guys are. <laughs> you know, um, you're cultivating something different than, than, the, than the Buddha's path. So one could look at the news without getting angry. One could. I d- getting angry. I had a, and and it, it can, there can be a practice to do that. For, for a number of years I had a practice myself where I would, um, I would listen to, to uh, hate radio. You know the Rush Limbaugh and the mostly Michael Michael Savage, and what I would do would when I would get off work and I'd drive home, I would put the radio on, and my and listen to these guys listen to mostly to Savage, and my goal and then if the rule was well, as soon as I got reactive, I have to punch the radio off. And my goal was for months to be able to get to the freeway entrance with the radio still on, you know. But when I was when I was when I was young, when I was really little, I know that at the on the AM radio on Sunday mornings at the short end of the dial, it used to be all the preachers would be on in the morning, and and I would be looking for something to listen to, and I'd hit each of those stations, and my reaction would be boring. Just move on to something like I don't know whatever I was listening to when I was eight. Um, and I was hoping that eventually I would be able to have that same relationship to Rush and Glenn Beck and, and these guys. And actually, over time, not only is it possible to listen to them, but you don't, you don't get sucked into the, to the debate with the, what they're throwing up. Instead, you hear them as, as people, as showmen and as people trying to sell a point of view and trying to persuade you and being angry. And, and, um, so it is possible to listen to that stuff and not, not, be, not be reactive, but it, it, can, it can take some practice. Anyone who aspires to the indescribable whose mind is expansive and whose heart is not bound to sensual craving is called one bound upstream. 
the path is upstream. That means it's not, you know, if you're not, reminds me of that, is that another Bob Dylan line comes to my mind, he who's not busy being born is busy dying. You know, if your heart is not bound to sensual craving, you're upstream because the normal tendency is when pleasant experience arises, you want more of it, and when unpleasant experience arises, you want to get rid of it. You know, so we add on to our experience that struggle to move that valence in a pleasant direction. And that effort can make things worse, and it doesn't often make things better. Sometimes, occasionally, we get some relief from that. Um, anyone who aspires to the indescribable, I think it's in, in the introduction here where, where Gill talks about, or maybe it's in the article in The Current Inquiring Mind, he's talking about Nibbana, the indescribable, and he says, it's very similar. One of, one of the reasons it's described in negative terms in so many places, it's like um, if a bunch of prisoners are released from prison, each one of them is going to be experiencing the freedom of being released from prison. But that experience may be different for each one. It won't be one consistent experience for all of them. Does that make sense? So if you were going to say, well, what is freedom like? One person would say, well, what is Nibbana like? Well, Nibbana is like getting to go to the ball game, you know, or, you know, getting to eat some decent food. Or, I mean, you could describe it in any one of a number of ways, but. Interesting. So you're saying Nibbana is subjective? Well, Nibbana, of course, it's right. Of course, <laughs> if it's a verb, it's something you do. And the notion is that it's. Um, it may not be describable as a, you may not be able to put your finger on it. So it's described as what arises when craving ends. Well, what does arise when craving ends? Well, it depends on where you are. You know, if you're in the middle of, of a famine, well, then it, it, what arises is the need for food for a lot of people and for care for a lot of people. You know, it would be very different if, if you become free. Um, in Union Square. <laughs> you know. So it's, if you aspire to the indescribable, so, you know, that's why it may be indescribable. Because, I'm sorry? You have to experience it. Well, right. And, you ta- and it gets described in negative ways a lot. Mm-hmm. Because... Well, it does. Achan Shah said, if you let go a little, you have a little freedom. You let go a lot, you have a lot of freedom. If you let go completely, you have complete freedom. But the letting go completely in Union Square and letting go completely in more dire circumstances, you're letting go completely, but still. I've heard, I've heard the experience of the is like, picture yourself in a room watching TV, right? It's at nighttime. Then all of a sudden, there's a power outage. All the lights go out. And there you are in the darkness, completely isolated, nothing. No, there's no, no fans going on, no nothing. Just that, that moment, momentary, complete blackout. 
That's what the experience of nibbana is like. Well, I don't know. If you if if you get, if craving is uh, abandoned in this in this moment right here, there's still all these colors and you guys sitting around and. It's not a void. I I don't think it's a void. The mind doesn't stop generating thoughts. The heart doesn't stop pumping blood. No, but you're not aware of it. Well, I'm not sure what that means. Not aware. I mean, there's no there's no consciousness. It's just. I'm not sure. Of course, it would have to be. Why do you think it would have to be? Because consciousness is related to samsara. Nibbana is not samsara. Nibbana is completely on its own. It, it, it's, it's non-conditional. There's no conditions for that. I mean, I can't make Nibbana happen because I want it to happen. There are certain things that you have to do to, to enable yourself to obtain Nibbana, to get in that, into that mind space. You know what I mean? Well, but I, I'm not so sure that Nibbana is a thing to obtain or even attain. And, and, well, I'm not so sure. There are people who describe Nibbana as, and Samsara as the same thing. You know, Nagarjuna... You even look at the text hmm? where the Buddha is always talking about the attainment of Nibbana. Well, I'm not sure... Yeah, in the, in the Mahayana, it's, it's very different. And Samsara and Nibbana are the same. Well, I think that uh, if if you're dead, there's not a lot of attainment possible. There you go, attainment. It's it's um. So in consciousness, it can be experienced in this life, in this present life, in this. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. why the kingdom of heaven, in the Christian sense, is at hand right now. But we're not talking about Christian heaven. This it's is a completely different I'm con- just saying it in another way. Then I'll say it in the Buddhist way that Nibbana is right here. Nibbana is, you, you said the consciousness uh, is not part of Nibbana, but consciousness occurs at the five, at the six sense gates. Whether there's colors and shapes and sounds, they arise without, whether or not Nibbana is. Uh, I mean, they, they exist for the enlightened and for the unenlightened as well. I mean, you, you know, just to clarify things, you know, I mean, just to make it, make it more simple, if you were to if you were pick up, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Mahatma Seattle's stuff, right? But, like, he's got a, he's got a program right there where it talks in detail, I mean detail, of exactly how to obtain Nibbana and what happens during the moment of Nibbana and what happens afterwards. I mean, it's right there. As his experience, yeah. but if you but if we're talking about prisoners being released from prison and us being released from the binding of our experience, each one of us would experience it differently. Although we might all agree that it's this, that we're all tasting the same thing. The Buddha said, "My teachings have one taste, and that's the taste of liberation." And nibbana, nibbana is is that that liberation the indescribable anyone who aspires to the indescribable he says it's up to you to make strong effort you know 
This is not, there's it's what we were talking about earlier, you know, and the difference between the opening of the, of the Bible and the opening of the Dhammapada. It's up to you to make strong effort. Tathagatas merely tell you how. Following the path, those absorbed in meditation will be freed from Mara's bonds. Absorbed in meditation doesn't just mean sitting on the cushion. It means being mindful and attentive, in this case, moment by moment. And it's up, it's up to you. There's no external source that can, that can do it for you, that can take away your sins as it were, or as it weren't. So this is really, this one, this one's really, um, really huge. The, it's up to you and it's, and it's hard. Few are the people who reach the other shore. Many are the people who run about on this shore. But those who are in accord with the Dharma, with the well-taught Dharma, will go beyond the realm of death so hard to cross. It's up to you, and you have, and it's not easy to do. Yeah? Um, I was on a retreat recently. I was on a retreat recently. You have to turn it on. Oh. There we go. Okay. Yeah. We've got all the electronics now. I was on a retreat recently, and um, I was uh, I experienced this moment of uh, of tearful joy, and it, and it was around. I noticed the fact that I had been on this retreat long enough and quiet enough and not looking around enough that uh, I was at a, in a state of no judgment. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any in judgment. And then when I talked to the, the Dharma teacher when I had an interview, uh, she mentioned that um, we already have enlightenment within us. And it's just a matter of chipping away things that get in the way of that enlightenment mm-hmm. that's already within us. And, and when we get quiet and we get mindful, sometimes we get little sneak previews of what it's it's like you can call them sneak previews um, but I think they are they are in themselves um, enlightened moments um, and of course if we weren't capable of awakening then none of this would be of much use so to say we have enlightenment in us I'm not sure what that means, but we have the capability of being awake. That capability, that possibility. Um, it could be an, an enlightened moment, or it could be a deluded moment. Yeah. I have this prejudice about the notion that you're already enlightened and you basically have to realize it. And I'm not sure where that comes from is because there's no way of... There's a notion of 
you're aligning, you just have to realize, you just have to sort of brush away the, the dust. And there's another notion that, no, it takes work, it takes cultivation, it takes development. It takes going upstream. Yeah. And so I sort of caught between these, it feels like dichotomy to me. Well, some of, some of the imagery, uh, it, it depends if we have, if the imagery is got a lot of nouns in it, there are a lot of things in it, then it becomes a little, a little bit more problematic from, from my point of view. So to say enlightenment is within us already, I'm not sure what this enlightenment is. Is it a, is it a thing with an essence? I don't, I don't know. But the capability, the possibility of being awake in the present moment, as humans, we have an incredible range of possibilities. I mean, we can do, we, we can do the most horrendous damage and we can also do the most exquisitely beautiful stuff as well and we've all seen all of that and you know probably we've all touched some of most of that ourselves you know it's um, so you know all of that potential is there and and there's a there's a oh maybe it's an Apache myth that I've heard maybe you've Maybe you've heard it too about the the son talks to his father and the father is telling him about the two wolves, the one you know, the one that's good and the one that's bad, and it's which one wins, and it's the one you feed. Um, and the, it's the one, it's what you cultivate. So it's why we say practice in accord with the Dharma, live in accord with the Dharma. You're either living on I eighty or you're living on the Oregon Trail. You know, you're doing one or the other if you're going west. Um, you know, whatever habits you're manifesting, whatever you're cultivating, you're cultivating something because you're paying attention and... So, a uh, hair-breath difference. I'm sorry? And a hair-breath difference is quite a lot of difference. It could be. It could be. Yeah. That could be all that it takes. And it's the difference of intention in that case. Go ahead. No, I was going to say to what Victor, it it came out of Zen. Basically, when I I have an interview with my Zen teacher, he says, you're already enlightened. I don't know what that means, but he says it to me anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds very familiar. And it's like, is the acorn the tree or the tree the acorn? Um, well, I think you put your finger on it, so it's just um, another way of saying that it's that reification <clears throat> by, by, by saying that something is, the reification that follows from the verb to be, which is an, a higher abstract level of language. Right. <clears throat> and when you say that, that it, then, then a lot of assumptions come in, like, well, like what Victor said, well, it... it it kind of assumes that you don't have to do any work, but it's not necessarily true that it doesn't assume. And, and also, I, I would just say in my own experience of the Mahayana, of Zen, not, it's not a, a Zen thing to say that. Others, I know Zen teachers who do not talk about enlightenment and who do not, and who mm-hmm. talk a lot about effort, right effort and mm-hmm. the path. So it's... 
Right. And when you start saying <clears throat> things like you are already enlightened or you're already deluded, are, they the, are you saying the same thing? Is, what is it? Dogen said the average person is deluded about en enlightenment and the, <laughs> then the awakened person is enlightened about, about delusion. delusion. Yes. <laughs> and that's all. It's not, you know... Um, in, you know, in, but even in the, going back to this text, like at which you referenced this morning, it's in, in the beginning chapter, there is that, that verse on one who was freed from the defilements. So mm -hmm. that, ha I mean, you could read that as kind of an implication that the defilements, I think maybe even you, that phrase came up, that the defilements visit us, or, or that's even the way that the hindrances are often taught in, in this tradition. Right. You know, so that so that there's an implication, but we, but looking that, that we're, well, we're, we have this certain nature that's really not like that, but things visit us. But in, in fact, if we look more precisely and carefully, we see that they just come and go, which is what you were. They come and go. And to say that you are what's left without the defilements is maybe a little bit confusing, you know, because, because um, you're creating a self, an entity there, and then you're saying that without the defilements you are pure. Well, without the defilements, there's just this experience without craving. And it's like that um, ego that's brought up a chicken and lived all his life as a chicken, looked up onto the ego and admired the ego in the sky, and somebody, his fellow chicken said, well, those are the egos. We're chicken. We stay down here. So, is, so the ego died a chicken. So was he an ego or was he a chicken? Well, the, the, the entityness of any of these things, you know, is questionable. Right. Greater in combat than a person who conquers a thousand times a thousand people is the person who conquers herself. And conquering is not overcoming in a sense, it's just allowing it to be. You know, not, what does it mean to conquer the self? But this is certainly, you know, the road to Nibbana is one thing, the road to material gain and recognition Praise. You know, overcoming those things, not so easy. But, but setting the standard high. How, how is it that a person could conquer a thousand times a thousand people? That's, that's just round, rounded off. It's a million people. How could one person conquer that? He's saying greater than that is the ability to conquer. Oh, I, I, think, I think what they were referring to, if I remember the story, is when they were talking about Angula Malik. Angula Malik. Mm. And he was supposed to kill a lot of people, you know, wasted a lot of people. And then, when they, and then when he was finally able to confront with the Buddha, right, the Buddha was able to convert him into being a, from a bad person, evil person, to a good person. Actually, he actually became an Arhant, and that's what they mean by... Uh, 
person who conquers himself. He was able to become an island. Well, that's what it takes, is to not be, or to, not to conquer the, what arises and passes as um, the temptations that suck us into greed and aversion. And the delusion to think that pursuing that. But I, I think this is, a, this is an interesting um, standard. One of the things that, that the Buddha uses, he uses the metaphor of uh, craftsmen. So that in, in, a, in a way this is a, this is a matter of skillfulness. The restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control, the sage makes straight as a fletcher the shaft of an arrow. This is another, another manifestation of the word mind here. So the restless, agitated mind attention, we're talking about our attention, about our intention, flitting around. The bill, you know, when you sit down to meditate, the mind, it, it's got a will of its own, it seems. It's not just me, right? <laughs> just always checking. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's doing its own thing. It's, it's, it just refers to someone who uh, makes arrows. It's, a, it's a, uh, a craftsman, a particular kind of craftsman. He uses this, um, irrigators guide water, fletchers shape arrows, carpenters fashion wood, sages tame themselves. So the idea here is that you would work on yourself with the same kind of diligence you might pursue a craft, learning an, an instrument or a language or, you know. And the pace is pretty much similar, you know. You don't sit down at the piano and the next day play the Moonlight Sonata. Sounds so simple, but how do you, how do, you do it? You know, and it's the same with with, uh, but it's a it's a skill in the in the uh, uh, the Metta Sutta. The Buddha says, um, "This is what should be done by one who's skilled in goodness." So it's a skill, and and in a way, that's really good news, because it means that working at it, you can actually make a difference. And I think, and this this particular verse is in two places in in the uh, in the whole texts. It's it's this one is eighty, but it's also one forty five. Um, except in one one forty five, actually the last the last phrase is a bit different. Irrigators guide water, fletchers shape arrows, carpenters fashioned wood. The well-practiced tame themselves. So the well-practiced and the sage are the same, or they're used similarly.
Tony, do you know if there was a different poly word that was used? I assume so. I don't have the poly text. Oh, well, I do, actually. So that was uh, 145. Subata, as opposed to, and the other one was 80. Mm -hmm. The wise one, it's a phrase. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a longer phrase. Yeah. So, just looking at that, Eric Gator's guide water, the right. guiding, mm -hmm. the shaping, mm -hmm. the, shop, the fashioning, uh -huh. and the taming, right. they're no different. And, and we work on ourselves the same way. It's the same... Uh, practice uh -huh. is the same ising. Mm -hmm. Is the function of whoever you want to aspire that you want to do to be in your essence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's something. It's because it's a skill. It's something that we can work on, and it, and that's we're not at the mercy of of things. Oops, there we go. That's the. Um, Tony, yeah. the word that comes to mind is like crafting. That, right. That, that there's a process of actually crafting. Right. And that's something that we can do as we become more skilled at our, at not just the meditation, but at our living in the world. We actually can direct our attention and direct our intention rather than being at the mercy of what arises. But just like a craftsman picks the, the, the materials, in a way we can pick what we put in our, That's right. in our experience, right? So we, we guide or we guard the senses or we, you know, basically we can choose the material that we're, we're putting into our experience in a, in a way that's skillful, right? The first, the first verse in the chapter on flowers, verse 44 who will master this world and the realms of yama who will master this world and the realms of yama and the gods who will select a well taught dharma teaching as a skilled person selects a flower so it's with the same kind of attentiveness you know to be able to recognize can you recognize the dharma when you hear it so if you hear and, and you know there's no truth in labeling in spiritual teachings so you don't get a, a spiritual teaching. Somebody does their Dharma talk, and they there's no label at the end that say, "Well, this was 40% Buddha Dharma, you know, 35% uh, uh, Hindu Brahmanical teaching, 10% Christian mysticism, and 5% bullshit." Nobody, you just there's no labeling in this. So can you recognize? 
you will select a well-taught Dharma teaching as a skilled person selects a flower. And, and that's an interesting issue because it's possible to find in, in, in Dharma circles and Dharma teachings, teachings that originated outside of the Dharma, that, that sort of seep in just because the same person is teaching them, uh, or they're being, you know, classes are being given in the same building, or so, it, you know, the question is, can, you know, how do you recognize the Buddha Dharma? So if someone says, you're already enlightened, how do you know whether, whether to take that seriously? You know, that's, you know when, when you hear the Dharma, can you recognize it? If all you have is now this moment, this moment is the Dharma. Well, the idea here is that if you have knowledge of the Dharma, if there's a perception of the Dharma, so it's it's going to be it's going to come out of out of uh, this kind of perception. It's going to be view, right view. Those things are, are hardwired. The mind labels things, so you aren't without a label, without an understanding. But you but the understanding is also not the same as. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. All those are the, the practice of it. The, the, so when you're watering, you're just watering. When you're fashioning the wood, you're just fashioning the wood. When you're fashioning, you're just fashioning the wood. What else is there other than the now and the fashioning? And there is no nibbana to look for as such. Well, that's the st- from the standpoint of nibbana. From the standpoint that we're in right now, um, there's some work to do. Yeah, but also the form and the formless are the same, and you can have both at the same time. Well, you know, when you're talking about, and, and maybe this is a moment to digress a little bit, but when you're talking about the content of something like the Heart Sutra, where, where form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and you're, you're taking the standpoint of an awakened mind. Um, it's different than taking the standpoint of where we sit here. So, so for example, to say f- the form and the formless are the same means that it doesn't do any good to use those terms at all. Ultimate truth, the ultimate truth is that relative truth is empty. And so to understand emptiness is to understand ultimate truth. But you can't formulate ultimate truth in conventional terms, except to say that it's empty. 100% correct. So you're not, you're not, you're not, um, to say the form and the formless are are the same is... Well, you've got to say something. You have to say something. So the minute you open your mouth... You digress from that silence, you're out of it. The trouble with saying something, though, is you're already creating a, uh, a formation other than a direct experience. Well, the Buddhist, well, it depends on how you relate to it. The Buddhists would describe the well-taught Dharma 
And the Dharma can be presented in a, in a skillful fashion without, without uh, intentionally diluting. Um. And that's why there's the a thousand negations. You can talk about well, that. The negations are helpful. It's a, it's yeah. It, it, um, to, to my understanding of of the Heart Sutra and that is that it's pointing to. It's not saying this that they're the same form and formlessness. In fact, it's pointing to the indescribable. It's pointing to not getting caught in a duality of looking at there's this. Or well, I don't remember or the Heart Sutra talking about form and formless, but it talked about form and, and emptiness. It, it, emptiness is form, form and emptiness. It means emptiness is empty. It's not pointing. But it's not the same. It's not the, well. It does talk about form as as it goes through the Heart Sutra. But it, it and form not being in a and being in a formlessness. But it's not saying that they're the same thing. They are saying the same. Saying that form is. It says form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Yeah. I don't yes, but that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. <clears throat> well, they aren't separate either. No, exactly. That's what they're I'm not, understanding. They're is not separate they're, and they're not the same. Yes, yeah, so they're pointing to the fact that they're <laughs> indescribable. And they're play, it's playing a game with language in a way, or playing, you know, using the, uh, cap- the am- ambiguous capabilities of language to... I'm not sure that it's ambiguous. I think, I think to say form is emptiness is not ambiguous, and to say... You know, emptiness as form is not ambiguous. Emptiness does not exist separate from form. And form does not exist separate from emptiness. Because something has to be empty or else there's, emptiness doesn't have any meaning. So, empty, so what, what is empty? Form. And so form and emptiness are, it's like the actor and the action. The same thing. We can extract the action from it. You know, um, guy used to hold up this and you can say, well, this is round and it's also brown. It doesn't mean it's contradictory to say it's brown. No, it's round. No, it's brown. I, I, I think I'm... I, 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 that doesn't mean they're the same thing either. No, well, that's what I thought I was saying. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, so okay. I, that doesn't mean that they're the same thing. But they're so. also not different. I, I agree with that. Yeah. That's a further. That's that's another side right. of that. that I was. Not I like. And they're not I like that because it it's, it has that Zen sound to it. <laughs> they're not the same, and they're not. It's different. not the same, and it's not different. But as you go through the whole Heart Sutra, it points up the paradox of, of trying to separate out. <clears throat> it's it's mostly saying all all the Dharma teachings are empty. All the aggregates are empty. The noble truths are empty. The hindrances are empty. And that just means that they don't exist separate on their own, independent. They are all part of the mix. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing to cling to. Nothing. Nothing to cling to. That's right. And when you cling, the clinging, it's like trying to grab... Oh, is it Joseph Goldstein says, clinging is just... Rope burn. (laughs) Just grabbing on and it's like, you know, it's the clinging that's... Although rope burn sounds like there's something you're clinging to. I think of it more as like trying to grab water. 
there's nothing to cling to, but the clinging can actually be unpleasant and painful uh, as you try to hold on, even though you can't. That's very good. Some way about the, about the rope clinging and the grabbing of the water made it clear. It's just like they're not saying, pointing to form and formless, but they're, they're saying they're identical. There's nothing, the difference, at that, but at the same time, they're different. They're, they're not the same and they're not different. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. We're done. <laughs> no, we know The monastic to. who delights in vigilance and fears negligence advances like a fire burning fetters subtle and gross. That's really, that's just inspiring to me. Delighting in vigilance, delighting in vigilance every moment. And fearing negligence, that just means the, the attention. It's, it's, you know, like walking over thin ice where the ice is starting to crack and you're going, oh, and you just hear every shift and subtle move and you're, you know. Um, isn't, isn't there a, a, an image somewhere about crossing thin ice as being the way you're supposed to bring attention to your Dharma practice? The monastic who delights in vigilance and fears negligence is incapable of backsliding and is quite close to nirvana. So vigilance and negligence. You know, and proceeding with effort and energy and attention, working at it, I just, that's, I just find that very inspiring. Burning fetters, subtle and gross, because if you're attentive... When, the, when the, the fetters show up, you just see them. They're just, they're just... There's no backsliding. Not, not if you're attentive. If you delight in vigilance, not just are vigilant, but you find, you, you know, and he's, we've, we've talked about delighting in vigilance, delighting in, in being passion-free, and just being alert to the clinging impulse, watching out for it. And fear's negligence. Fear's going downstream. You know, you're, all your motivation is, is in attention to... Uh, this one is good. Be quick to do good. Restrain your mind from evil. It's very similar. Uh, when one is slow to make merit, one's mind delights in evil. So this is, this, this is interesting because what it's suggesting here is that if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. If you're not moving upstream, you're going downstream. And it has to do with just how you're spending your time. I sit on the cushion, you know, half hour, twice a day, and I'm going upstream twice a day. The rest of the day, I'm going downstream. <laughs> and I sit on the cushion, I paddle like crazy, and, you know... Um, Basically, <laughs> right? Be quick to do good. And it's, it's, you know, when the mind, when one is slow to make merit, one's mind's delights in evil because you're doing something. You're, well, you're always doing something. There's no way to not be doing something. So if you are, even if you're not, you know, even if you're just sitting, you can be, alert and peaceful. But if you're not being mindful and, and attentive, well, that downstream current is, continues to move. Well, I guess 
guess that's it. I mean, if you're not making merit, you're making demerit. It's, or it's making you. <laughs> right. I find that one particularly helpful. Better than a hundred years lived lazily and lacking in effort is one day lived with vigor and exertion. May I ask a question? Please. So just looking at this, if you have to be vigilant all the time, there's really no nibbana as such. It's a process. It is a process. It's not a noun. Nibbana as a part of speech, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, is an intransitive verb. Gill describes it as a as a verb of being, so it's you know a verb like unbinding, or um, yeah, it's a gerund. It's a gerund form. So it is it is a it is a verb. And when we think of it as a noun or as a thing or a state, then we sort of relate to it differently. It's something we do. We do it when we, we nibbana, when we don't cling. So, just a little bit on my English. Yeah. What is, give me an example of ordinary life of an intransitive An intransitive, I run. I run. Running, it doesn't take an object. So, yeah, if I hit the chair, that's a transitive verb. It takes an object. Some, the verb lands on something. Is, is that about right? Yes, it is. It transfers the action to something else. There you go. Transitive Yeah. So breathing is intransitive? Well, it is unless you're saying, if you're just saying I'm breathing, but you could use a trans, I'm, I'm breathing in suffering and I'm breathing out peace, then you would be using it in a transitive form. So some, so some, some verbs are both. You could use in both... Um, so if you're, um, so so does does that ex- explain? So it, it's a it's a a verb that that doesn't take an object. So nibbana is something we do. Dukkha is also a verb form. It's something we do. We're dukkhaing. It's a noun form. It's called a gerund. Yeah. Gil has a great little piece in that, the new inquiring mind on the nature of nibbana. It's just wonderful. It's really fun and it's short. Well, it's like love. You don't, you, you're loving. You, you can be. You're doing the act of love. Is metta, that right? When you, when you, when you are, are cultivating metta, it doesn't necessarily have an object. But you often do it by, conju- by conjuring in, it in relation to an object. Okay. Um, so love actually takes an object quite a bit of the time. But when the Beatles sing love, 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 they're just... It's, actually, that's a, they're using it as a noun, aren't they? So, but but the, the thing here is Nibbana... Enlightenment, those are nouns. Well, enlightenment is a noun. Sounds like it. 
Nibbana is really a verb. And, and we get distracted by our language. I would even add that enlightenment is also this intransitive. Also. Well, it should, yeah. If, that's, if you're really talking about, about that, it's, it's, it's um, right, it's intransitive. So, Tony, would you say that um, enlightenment would actually be stringing moments of nibbana, nibbana-ing? Or naroda. So, so naroda is the yeah. word means naroda cessation. Naroda would be the cessation. Yeah. So, so the idea is that we can have momentary experience of nibbana in the sense that it, in, in moments in which we're free, in moments in which there's no uh, clinging, there's no hatred, delusion. Buddha Dasa has a piece called Nibbana for Everyone, and yeah. you can find it on the web if you just, uh, if you Google Nibbana for Everyone, it'll, it'll turn up, and he, that's, yeah. that, he makes he, that case. free samples or something like that. He, he, gave, <coughs> he makes that case, that yeah, Nibbana... That's it. Whenever you, when are, when are you ever in that moment where there is no greed, no hatred, no delusion? Well, there, there, there are moments. Actually, the, in the, the third foundation of mindfulness, you're encouraged to be aware of when, when, when greed is present and when it's not present. Yeah, but it, I, what I'm saying is, that, I mean, like, there is not a moment where you're not completely free from all of those things. You might be free from one of those things. You might be free from two of them. But you're not going to be free from all of them because if you were, that's a state of the bond. Well, it's 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 um, uh, the cessation of of greed and hatred and delusion. Um, you know, nibbana may be different than than Naroda, and it may be the insight into the the pure, the deepest insight, the full insight into the nature of suffering, and craving, and the path. Um, whereas Naroda may be a moment of cessation, Nirvana. Well, but none of that stuff is going to... It, it all arises and passes. You know, to think that yeah. it's not going to be impermanent. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody... Even That's Jack... Awesome. Even Jack Cornfield talks about after the ecstasy, the laundry, right. you know? Right. Um, I, I disagree with that because, I mean, the fact is if, if you... If there is, if there's a point where it's all impermanent, then nibbana is impermanent. Is that what you're saying? Nibbana is impermanent. I mean, if that's the point, then what is the point of even doing all the meditation? What's the point of doing all this stuff? The point is to get off this wheel of samsara, to get into that state of nibbana, which is permanent. Which there, when, there, when there is no more becoming, being reborn. That's the whole point. That's why we do what we do. There's none. Well, there's, there's, there's... <laughs> there's none. There's absolutely none. Uh, I mean, because when you look at the Buddha himself, when he went, when he reached Paranavana, that doesn't mean he's coming back in another existence. So... His, his, his existence is over, period, done. That's Nibbana, that's that state where there's no coming back. Well, he said his existence was over long before then. Oh, well, see, it does. There are times in which one do go through this, this uh, special moment in some tradition. They call that a kensho moment, 
no matter how short it is or how long, it is just completely in ecstasy in, in a, you know, this for a moment, a certain enlightenment, but still, but still that is just an experience, and it is gone. There is but a story, there is. There's, a, there's a book called, uh, by uh, uh, an author, Rene Dumas, uh, Mount Analog, and it's a, it's a metaphor, you know, you hunting for the mountain of enlightenment, and people go up to the top and they look out, but you can't live there. It's above the tree line, it's, there's no nutriment, you have to come back down. And he says, so what is the point of having gone up the mountain? And he says, because from up there you have seen and you remember and then you don't act in terms of the understanding before you were at the top and you are free from the delusion that only exists at the bottom. Because once you've arrived there, not that I have, I heard, that there is, you are coming back to what they call the marketplace. It's the same as before, but there is no, uh, there is a restfulness. There is no, no clinging. Yeah. You're doing the same thing. There's no difference, but there is a, a restfulness. There is a satisfaction. There is not a. Uh, I got to learn this. I got to meditate. I got. What eating, is eating. Where walking is walking. I couldn't tell the difference between cooking and meditation. Delight in vigilance. Protect your own mind. Lift yourself from a bad course. Like a tusker sunk in mud. Tusker is a kind of an elephant. Saying make an effort to get out of this delusional state. This is all part of the the um, his his um, urging vigorous attention and vigorous work. Sorrow, I'm sorry? Oh, I'm sorry. Like a tusker sunk in mud. Thanks, Victor. Sorrow grows like grass after rain for anyone overcome by this miserable craving and clinging to the world. After a while, you read this stuff and you say, well, of course, it's all just, <laughs> it's the same thing. Sorrow grows like grass after rain, just automatically, just happens. You know, it's like, it's like the wheel following the ox. It's, you know, it's just, is, it's on automatic pilot. For anyone overcome by this miserable craving, sorrow grows. And and clinging to the world. It just is... um, Bhikkhu, be absorbed in meditation. Don't be negligent. Don't let your mind whirl about in sensual desire. Don't be negligent and swallow a molten iron ball and then being burnt, cry out, this is suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if if you're going to be negligent... Etc. 
what's the surprise? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, this is suffering. <laughs> and that be absorbed in meditation. I, again, I take that to be mindful throughout the day, in your day-to-day, not just on the cushion. Because this is, you know, really the Dhammapada here is about uh, how to live, not how to sit on the cushion. It's about how to conduct your life. It should be noted that there is a slight, I don't want to say prejudice, but leaning towards, uh, away from the notion of John uh-huh. in, in Gil's presentation of in Gil's presentation? Yeah. In Gil's Sounds good to me. <laughs> you know, I, I, if there's, there's a tendency that I see to, to say, well, you've got mindfulness here, and you've got... And, and Ajahn Chah used to say, this is meditation. This is mindfulness. This is concentration. You don't, you don't get mindfulness without some stability. And I actually... In my own mind, I understand samadhi as stability, not so much as absorption states, jhana, jhana states, um, but they come together. And the stability of the mind, the ability to hold attention on an object so that you can study it and see it as it arises and changes and passes, well, that's... That's the stability that... So, Gil is more skillful than I am in, in dodging. <laughs> There's a discipline in, in, in addressing the, that continuum of whether you're in the mindful or the jhana. And, and there's, there, are, there are... With the jhana wars, you know, how much jhana do you really need? Do you know? Do you need just access concentration? Do you need... Just first jhana, fourth jhana. I I sat with um, uh, one of Pa Ak's senior disciples once, and for for a retreat, and, and it was um, wow. We we were sitting an hour and a half a sitting. Well, you know, an hour and a half is a long time for me to sit. And we'd sit for an hour and a half and walk for half an hour, so our bodies wouldn't seize up, and then it'd be another hour and a half. Well, for me, it was sort of like when I first started meditating, my body was achy and tired. And I went in for my interview with, with her, and, and I said, well, this is tough practice, uh, you know. And I said, uh, but, it, you know, this, this isn't my, really my practice. Oh, she says, what is your practice? I said, well, I do Vipassana meditation. Oh, no, you don't. She said, you can't even begin to do that until you've mastered all eight jhana states. So, you know, that's, that's, one, that's one extreme. The other extreme, and that's Pauak, the other extreme is Utejaniya, who was here too, and he, he doesn't want you to do John. In fact, he, he doesn't have you st- attend to your breath even. He doesn't want you that much focus. Um, so, you know, how do you recognize the Dharma? That's the question. Can you recognize it without a label? Because <laughs> there's no F, there's no FDA saying you got to label the calories and the you know the content of what it really in needs it. to be explored. You really need to to do the hour and a halfs whatever, and you need to do the 
I remember correctly, was um, using the concentrated state to then contemplate what we wish to be contemplating, which I thought was a wonderfully useful. There are, there are a lot of people who teach concentration practices, and they teach them often. I mean, concentration doesn't yield insight directly, but if you can get the mind still and then back off a little bit and watch what arises, the mind is more still and calm, and, and so it's taught as an adjunct to or to supercharge the insight or something like that. So it, it's not... It's not out to lunch, <laughs> you know. It's not off the reservation, but it's but it's not concentration practice in and of itself. Um, it's an eightfold path. It's not not a onefold or a twofold path. So some of the some of the qualities uh, of an awakened one, um, virtuous people. Always let go. This isn't even an, an urging you to let go. It's just saying virtuous people always let go. It's what happens. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. And then this is really interesting. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. That doesn't say the sage is exempt from suffering. But they're not elated or depressed. Equanimity. Yeah. Pretty interesting. And this is, I think I read this one earlier, as, this, as a, it's, it's related to, the, to that number seven in the first chapter. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame. I always think of that as um, unshakable. Unshakable. As a mountain, in that, in that first chapter, he says, as a mountain is not moved by the wind. Right. Whoever lives focused on the unpleasant, senses guarded, moderate with food, faithful and diligent, will not be overpowered by Mara, as a stone mountain is unmoved by the wind. Not, not swayed by praise or blame. As an elephant in battle endures an arrow shot from a bow, so, I will, so will I endure verbal abuse. Many people indeed lack virtue. That's pretty good. Because the, the tendency is to get, when somebody calls you a jerk, is to get defensive. And he's just saying, why? It's like an arrow bouncing off an elephant. Just does not even, just totally irrelevant. Just comes, it's like a mosquito. You know? Many people lack virtue. You're going to get people saying things that are crazy. On TV, from national from national pulpits, and as an elephant in battle endures an arrow shot from a bow, 
enduring verbal abuse, but can you, can you endure a diluted opinion? That's... <laughs> Really, you know, when you hear some of the stuff that gets said, don't you get up, doesn't it just punch your button sometimes? So I can't believe they're saying it. Many people indeed lack virtue. You just sort of, just write it off as that. Weeds are the ruin of fields. Passion is the ruin of people. So offerings to those free of passion bear great fruit. Weeds are the ruin of fields. Ill will is the ruin of people. So offerings to those free of ill will bear great fruit. Weeds are the ruin of fields. Delusion is the ruin of people. So offerings to those free of delusion bear great fruit. Weeds are the ruin of fields. Longing is the ruin of people. So offerings to those free of longing bear great fruit. So we've got basically passion, ill will, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion. People who are freed from those poisons. And longing, craving. I'm sorry? Is there a context where there might have where this phrase comes out of where there might have been competition between people going on rounds? I mean, don't give it to him because he's delusional. Give it to that person because the person isn't? Or is I, it just a metaphor? I think, he's, I think he's saying to honor the people who are free from, from greed, hatred, and delusion. And 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 um, offerings to those, in, in terms of the alms rounds, the idea would be to those beings who are awake and, and free from the defilements. Uh, so what's the difference between longing What's the difference between longing and passion? Isn't passion supposed to be like the greed or tanha? And wouldn't the longing be the tanha as well? Well... No, it's a it's an interesting. Let me just see if the, if I can come up with the different words. If there's if I can identify. Um. Do you think longing might be separation, which might be a little different flavor than craving? Could be the compulsion. One of them is more the compulsion, and the other is more the thirst. But mm. I thought the thirst was supposed to be the compulsion. So I. Yeah, you know, basically, I'm I'm a guy who who doesn't read Polly off the page, or even on the page, pretty much. Um, so they're different words, but I don't know. Uh, um, Raga dosa is. Um, the first Raga dosa is translated as passion. Um, then dosa dosa and moha dosa. So dosa dosa would be greed, ill will, 
And the last one is icha dosa. I don't know what that means. That's what he's translating as longing. Uh-huh. In the context of what you were saying this morning, we, you know, we're never satisfied of. Um, oh, we're never satisfied with. You know, if we, we either want, we want more, we want more, we want more, or we don't want more. But then, there, so all of those, this is a wrap up. Right. Like right. A, okay. So that that works. That, that makes sense. It's a it's a summary of the first of the of the earlier three. As jasmine sheds its withered flowers, so bhikkhus shed passion and aversion. The first sutta in the Sutta Napada is about as a, a snake sheds its worn-out skin. So it's this shedding we talked about in the Gautami Sutta at the very beginning. This shedding just abandons, just leaves it. You know, you don't fight aversion with aversion. It's why aversion to the hindrances is just more aversion. You know, the hindrances are something to study and look at and become familiar with, intimately familiar with, and not something to beat off with a stick. Because that just is more aversion. Aversion, as Eugene Cash likes to say, aversion to aversion is aversion. So it's just abandoning them, abandoning sense pleasures. Give up anger, give up conceit, pass beyond every fetter. There is no suffering for one who possesses nothing, who doesn't cling to body and mind. I mean, it's hard even to imagine not clinging to body and mind. To just be present with it the way it is and allow it to do its thing. Pass beyond every fetter. One who possesses nothing, the aggregates of clinging, the five aggregates. You know, rupa, the body, the perceptions, our opinions, our opinions, our knowledge. What is the universe made of? We have those, you know, we have ideas about that. We cling to those, you know. Um, Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant. Our wants and desires and, our, and our, the consciousness of our, uh, at our sense doors. We don't cling to those, there's no suffering. Far ranging, solitary, incorporeal, incorporeal, how do you pronounce that? Incorporeal. Incorporeal. That's my problem, I was accenting the wrong syllable. Incorporeal and hidden is the mind. Those who restrain it will be free of Mara's bonds. The mind again. You know, what, are, what, what is that word pointing at? You still think in that context you, you 
I, I do. But, you know, that's, I, that's not written in stone, obviously. Well, it's got, it's got the, it's, well, that's intention. So the sankaras are your intentions. That's that aggregate. So the mind could also be perception. It's all of this, all of this, all of this. Those, those who restrain it, so we're talking about restraining. So it's not so much, see, the, the aggregates aren't separate. They all work together in the same, in the, because the perceptions, to cling to the perceptions is to apply, in effect, the sankaras to the, to the sanya. Is the formations, the volitional formations to our perceptions, to cling to our opinions. Okay. And the self is the, is the flame of experience that arises from all of them together, from their being embedded in each other. In the same way that the flame of a candle arises from the wax and the wick and the oxygen and the source of ignition. Every moment there's a source of ignition. And when any one of those ceases, the candle goes out. And the, the, the self is just this flame of all five skandhas. You know, well, getting back to your point, well, when you have asked where your mind is, right, showing your mind, a good way to deal with, see that is like, for example, like you've got your arm that's stretched out. Your arm is, 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 is actually physical, right? It's a uh, rupa. And the mind would be like the intention to bend it, you know? Bend it, uh, uh, all of a sudden, that, and that that's, is, is, is a mental thing. That's, that's, that's uh, a... You're not a mind. Up, it's good when I go see my Zen master, if I brought up the issue of mind and was talking about that, then, uh, then uh, he would say, show me your mind. Well, and then what you did was just beautiful. Well, you could, you could say that the mind is, are these colors and shapes. You know, or the thoughts, colors and shapes, and I see a wall. So it's it's you know it's any of this experience. Yeah, it's an experience. Right. And those who restrain the mind will be freed from Mara's bonds. Suggests the restraint of intent to me, but you know it's a it's again it's a it's a, a koan. Oh look at that! I I uh, that's when I didn't press the thing down hard enough on the copier. Fearless, free of craving, and without blemish, having reached the goal and destroyed the arrows of becoming, one is in one's final body. I love the, uh, the phrase, destroy the arrows of becoming. I'm sorry? I just love the, the phrase, destroy the arrows of becoming. Well, you know, there there are three kinds of um, of tanha. There are three. There are three kinds of tanha. Uh, three kinds of the craving that cause suffering. The first one is um, kama tanha, which is the craving for pleasant experience, and the second would be bawa tanha, which is the craving to be. 
So that's what we're talking about, becoming. Becoming something in the future. And it, it's, we see it most clearly in the survival instinct. You know, wanting to just plain be in the future, to survive. And then the, the third is uh, vibhavatanha, which is, it's the impulse, let's get out of here, make this stop, got to stop this right now. So um, those are the three. So he's, he's talking about the, destroying the arrows of becoming. You won't become again. Not attached, is not born again into this world. So that's, that's what that is pointing at. Fearless, free of craving and without blemish, having reached the goal. Awake, having reached the goal. I've destroyed the arrows of becoming. And without blemishes, without even a little bit of that stuff showing up. Householder, I've seen, I'm not going to build this house anymore. I'm not sure why that one's in there. But it is. Yeah, well, you know, that's, it may just be because... Uh, yeah, the Gandharan style, the northern Indian style. It's different from the southern Indian. And you know, when, when, when Alexander showed up in, uh, in India, he brought craftsmen with him. And they, they influenced um, the artisans at the time. And, and so you can actually see some uh, images of the Buddha where the people surrounding him look like Roman centaurs. It's pretty interesting. About those standing Buddhas that were in Afghanistan, the ones that were destroyed by the Taliban. The Bamiyan, at Bamiyan, yeah. Just as a felled tree grows again if the roots are unharmed and strong, so suffering sprouts again and again until the tendency to crave is root, rooted out. And this points at something that is, um, well, it's, it points at underlying tendencies which are not often discussed the tendency to crave may continue to exist even though there may not be craving in the present moment. You may be contented in the present moment. You may be satisfied in the present moment. But that doesn't mean that if conditions arise that there wouldn't be craving arise. So he's pointing at just as a felled tree grows again if the roots are unharmed and strong, so suffering sprouts again and again until the tendency to crave is rooted out. So how do you... Because you can't even experience the tendency to crave. All, right. All you can experience is the craving. So, you know, the, sort of the way, it, the way I think about this is it's sort of like when you plow a field. You plow a field once, with, you go through it with the discs, and it tears up everything. But if you just plow it once, you're going to get stuff growing back again. So you, you plow over it again, and again, and again. And pretty soon you brought everything up, exposed everything to the air, and eventually the field won't sprout again. That's the, that's the thought. So with our practice, we watch the manifestations. We learn the, every the manifestations as clearly, as deeply, and, and, and distinctly as we can so that we can recognize them 
just as they start. And at a certain point, we aren't even going to, it won't even get our attention, presumably. We'll just, ah, craving again. Your rafters have been broken. I'm not going there. So, so the, the, the solution, just as a felled tree grows again if the roots are unharmed and strong, so suffering sprouts again and again until the tendency to crave is rooted out. Dealing with that tendency and with the, with the, with the, with the basic, the basic um, uh, defilements, the... the uh, Asavas, which there are four of those guys that are underlying. It's these are the the effluents. Sometimes uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translates them as cankers, and they're um, they're they're four of these guys. And the first one is sense pleasures, the tendency to prefer pleasant experience. There's also the tendency. Um, to, I, I believe, bawa asava is uh, the tendency to be in the future. And there's diti asava, which is the tendency to hold to our views, to cling to our perceptions. And avija asava, which is the tendency to cling to, to, to fall for, well, avija is ignorance. So it's to think that we're going to make ourselves happy by getting what we want. So. You mentioned in the glossary that for quality, sensuality, views, becoming, and ignorance. Yeah, that's the four. So those are the underlying tendencies. They, so suffering sprouts again and again until those tendencies are rooted out. And we root them out by becoming so familiar with the, with their manifestations that they no longer, um, they they no longer attract us. The starting point for an insightful bhikkhu is guarding the senses, contentment, restraint according to monastic rules, and associating with good spiritual friends who live purely and untiringly. So this is, the, this, is, this is the last of the slides I've got, and it's the starting point. And it's interesting to go through... The starting point is almost the ending point here. Guarding the senses talks about the senses guarded as, as a, a uh, habit of awakened. We've, we've come across that. Contentment. It's in the Gautami Sutta. It's, he comes across that as well. Restraint, according to the monastic rules. Now, the monastic rules, there are 227 of these precepts, and they include um, even what may appear trivial things, like you can't hang your robe on a peg with the hem facing out. It's got to face the wall. But the idea, underlying idea is to challenge your preferences. You don't even get to live by, by your preferences. Okay. And associating with good spiritual friends who live purely and untiringly. And there's, there's that, 
that story in uh, uh, Samyutta Nikaya where the where the Buddha and Ananda are looking out over their their um, <laughs> the word that came to my mind was herd of monks. <laughs> And, and Ananda says to the Buddha, well, this Sangha is pretty important. It's noble friendship is pretty important. It's got to be half the holy life. And the Buddha says, don't say so, Ananda. It's all of the holy life. Associating with good spiritual friends who live purely and untiringly. How did I organize them? Yeah, you jumped around. And so. The great organizational structure of my mind. I, I don't know. I, I, I looked for themes and, and, and um, organized them in terms of, of themes. And then what I found was as I moved through, they're all, refer, they're all pointing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You know? It's, they're, I mean, the taste of the Dhammapada, it's, you know, the feeling of the Dhammapada, it's really a unified kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I started, well, my outline has got... Um, well, I'm not sure what it's got. Restraint and, and an abandonment. I talked about the path, that it's hard. Um, the image of the craftsman, it's a something something skillful that you can work on even if even though it is difficult but it takes effort and vigor alertness um, and it re- and and it results in equanimity and peacefulness you know, the, res- the the fearlessness and uh, fin- you know that was that was, that was sort of how I organized that Of an awakened, right? And I have what I what I wanted to do was to just end with. If you don't have copies of the book, I have some of the last chapter. Anybody here who needs <clears throat> can hand to the people. I just wanted to go through the the last chapter because it is the chapter on the Brahman. It's the chapter where the Buddha. Um, is describing the qualities of an awakened creature, and I, I think it's um, it's worth looking at because you know we started with with the opening with the opening chapter, which which was about dichotomies. So this is chapter twenty six. Strive and cut off the stream, O Brahman. Dispel sensual craving. Knowing the ending of all formations, you, Brahman, will know the unmade. Now, the unmade, of course, doesn't exist. In, in any sense, it, doesn't, it hasn't been made. It's not conditioned. When, with tranquility and insight, the Brahman reaches the other shore, then for that knowing one, all fetters come to their end. 
And it's interesting that Gill has put knowing one in quotes because there, you know, uh, the way I relate to that is Wei Wu Wei wrote, who was a Chinese philosopher, he wrote, if there's anyone home to suffer, they will. So if you're going to, so if there is anyone home, so no self can be enlightened, no buddy can be enlightened, because if if you're if there's you there to suffer, <laughs> you will. Whoever is untied and free of distress, and for whom neither a beyond, a not beyond, nor a both beyond and not beyond exist, I call a Brahmin. Untied and free of distress, and doesn't have any metaphysical commitments to anything. <laughs> Whoever is seated, absorbed in meditation, done what had to be done, free of contaminants, who has reached the highest goal, I call a Brahmin. Now, the Brahmins, this is something else that the Buddha did. I, I talked about how he flipped the meaning of, of karma. Karman, but he also did the same with Brahman. Brahman was a status of by birth. The Brahman in in Indian society at the time came by birth, and he's saying, not by birth. The sun shines by day, the moon glows at night, the warrior shines in his armor. The Brahman shines in meditative absorption. But all day and all night the Buddha shines in splendor. Having banished evil, one is called a Brahmin. That's not by birth again. Living peacefully, one is called a renunciant. Having driven out one's own impurities, one is called one who has gone forth. This is interesting to me because one who has gone forth is usually the way it's it's referred to someone who's going into a monastery. And I'm not so sure these days that going into a monastery isn't going home to a monastery. Going forth into homelessness made more sense when, really, you were going into a forest and there wasn't a home. But traditionally, we still call it going forth into homelessness. Uh, But here he's saying, one who's gone forth is one who's driven out one's own impurities. There's no place... Of course there's no home... Because there's a, there's a verse in here about like swans going from lake to lake. Not one of them is a home. Tony, is that kind of an uh, allusion to the house builder? That there's no home left? Yeah, that's interesting, sure. Yeah. There's no, there's no place to cling to, no place to rest. Everything is impermanent. All, all experience comes and goes. One should not strike a Brahmin, and a Brahmin should not set anger loose. Shame on the one who hits a Brahmin, and greater shame on one who sets anger loose. For the Brahmin, nothing is better than restraining the mind, than restraining the mind from what it cherishes. Whenever one turns away from the intent to harm, suffering is allayed. 
But for the Brahmin, nothing is better than restraining the mind from what it cherishes. Nothing is better. Even getting what one cherishes isn't better. That's part of the trading, you know, gold for so straw for gold, the lesser happiness for the greater happiness. But he's saying nothing is better than restraining the mind from what it cherishes. Whoever does no ill through body, speech, and mind and is restrained in these three areas, I call a Brahmin. As a Brahmin worships a ritual fire, one should respectfully worship anyone with, from whom one might learn the Dharma of the fully awakened one. Not by matted hair, not by clan, not by birth does one become a Brahmin. The one in whom there is truth and dharma is the one who is pure, is a Brahmin. And that's just, that's just what he's, he's taken that term, which is a term everybody would know, and saying, what, <laughs> it's not what you think. Fool, what use is matted hair? What use is a deerskin robe? The tangled jungle is within you, and you groom the outside. That's pretty cute. Or just it. It the matted hair is is you know unwashed and just so it's if you're paying attention to how you look, looking good, you know. And he's saying the tangled jungle is inside. <laughs> don't don't worry about about the presentation. Someone robed in discarded rags, lean with veins showing, alone in the forest, absorbed in meditation. I call a Brahmin. I call no one a Brahmin for being born from a womb, from a mother. Someone who has, any, who has anything is called self-important. That's pretty interesting. Whoever has nothing and does not cling, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, having cut off every fetter, does not tremble, is unbound and beyond attachment, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, awakened, has cut the strap, thong, cord, and bridle, and lifted up the crossbar, I call a Brahmin. Whoever endures abuse, assault, and imprisonment without animosity, and who has forbearance as one's strength, as one's, one's mighty army, I call a Brahmin. I heard a story recently about, you know, you know the stories about the Tibetan monks and nuns who are who've been subject to such horrendous treatment in prison. And, and uh, this is a story that I, I heard just recently about um, a man who had been in prison for 20 years and tortured almost daily for that time. And he, um, at first, you know, he's, he tried to remind himself that of, of a teaching that in order for someone to do harm to another person, like that, uh, they had to be pretty unhappy. They had to be suffering pretty much themselves. And it may have been tough at first, but over the years, apparently, he became so adept at it that when he would hear the door open at the end of the hall and the boots in the hall, he, his heart would open with compassion for the suffering of this being. And he would, he would as this person is coming to hurt him, he would be feeling bliss. I, I'm not entirely sure. Gil has a note here, 398. 
I think it's, it has to do with a particular weapon or something. Um, the strap refers to hatred, the thong to craving, and the cord to the 62 wrong views that are taught in the Brahmajala Sutta, the bridle to the latent tendencies, and the crossbar to ignorance. Whoever is without anger or craving, observant in spiritual practice and virtue, self-controlled, and in one's final body, I call a Brahmin. Like water on a lotus leaf or a mustard seed on the tip of an awl, whoever does not cling to sensual craving, I call a Brahmin. That mustard seed on the tip of an awl. Not long for this world. Whoever knows right here the end of suffering, who is unburdened and unbound, I call a Brahmin. Whoever knows right here, right here, right here. Whoever is wise, of profound insight, understanding what is and isn't the path, and who has attained the highest goal, I call a Brahmin. Understanding what is and isn't the path is a challenge because, like I said earlier, there's no labeling. There's no truth in labeling for spiritual um, teachings. Whoever is not mixed up with householders or renunciants, who has no abode and few desires, I call a, a Brahmin. Clings to nothing, rests nowhere. I think gone, going forth here is a state of mind, not mixed up with householders or renunciants. Having given up violence towards beings, both timid and strong, whoever neither kills nor causes others to kill, I call a Brahmin. Whoever is unopposing among those who oppose, peaceful among the violent, not clinging among those who cling, I call a Brahmin. Whoever lets passion, aversion, conceit, and hypocrisy fall away, like mustard seed from the tip of an awl, I call a Brahmin. Whoever speaks what is true, informative, and not harsh, who gives offense to no one, I call a Brahmin. That's a tall order. To give offense to no one, it's almost impossible. You can give offense to someone just by being present, just having your body still in this world. Whoever in this world takes nothing not given, whether it is long or short, large or small, beautiful or not, I call a Brahmin. Whoever has no longing for this world or the beyond, who is unbound and without longing. Longing for this world and beyond. That, you know, we're looking for a better rebirth. We're looking for a better apartment. Having no attachments and through understanding, free of doubts. Whoever is established in the deathless, I call a Brahmin. Of course, the deathless, when I read the deathless, I also understand the birthless. So it's birthless and deathless. It's that indescribable. Not that it doesn't happen. Whoever here has overcome attachments for both merit and evil, That's interesting. And who is sorrowless, dustless, and pure. Who overcome attachments for both merit and evil. Well, we talked about the 
the Buddha's choice to abandon those motivations that were not for the benefit of the, himself or others. And here he's talking about abandoning the attachment for, uh, for merit, for the skillful intentions as well, and just allow the Brahma-viharas to be the source of your motivation, be the, to, be the, to be the intention just on their own. Whoever, like the moon, is spotless, pure, clear, and undisturbed, in whom the delight for existence is extinct, I call a Brahmin. The delight for existence is extinct. That's pretty good. Whoever has passed beyond this troublesome road, this difficult path, this samsara, this delusion, who has crossed over, gone beyond, who is a meditator free of craving and doubt, without clinging, released, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, having given up passion here, would go forth as a homeless one, in whom the passion for existence is extinct, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, having given up craving here, would go forth as a homeless one, in whom craving for existence is extinct, I call a Brahmin. Whoever, having given up human bondage, has gone beyond heavenly bondage, is unbound from all bondage. Remember, bondage is that. It's the fetter that we, we, we fetter ourselves with that we cling to. It's the monkey trap, speaking as a monkey. Whoever, having given up liking and disliking, has become cooled, without attachments, a hero overcoming the entire world. I call a Brahmin. Overcoming the entire world by abandoning liking and disliking. The world does not dominate. Whoever knows in every way the passing away and reappearing of beings and is unattached, awakened, and well gone, I call a Brahmin. An arahant whose destination is not known, is not known by gods, gandavas, or humans, whose toxins are extinct, I call a Brahman. Whose destination is not known. That's pretty interesting. Destination is not known. One for whom nothing exists, in front, behind, and in between, who has no clinging, who has nothing, I call a Brahman. One for whom nothing exists, there's a Zen, who's a, the fifth patriarch who said from the beginning nothing exists, nothing is. For one for whom nothing exists, anything is empty of independent essence, anatta applied across the board, shunya, emptiness, full emptiness of all things. Nothing exists. Only process is going on. There isn't a thing anywhere one for whom nothing exists. Whoever is most excellent, a bull, a hero, a great sage, a conqueror, free of craving, cleansed, awakened, I call a Brahman. And whoever knows one's former lives, sees both the heavens and states of woe, has attained the end of birth, is a sage perfected in the higher knowledges, and has perfected all perfections, I call a Brahman.
So there you go. But Dhammapada has its its own it has a very clear feel to it. A very clear teaching it seems to me and I find it um, very helpful. It's not scattered. It's not particularly reassuring. It's not a consoling thing. You'll be okay. That's sort of not in there. Um, so let me let me uh, just ask if there are questions or thoughts or comments. It's been a long day, and everybody starts to wilt about this time, including me. Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you read this whole last um, chapter in its entirety because um, I remembered through this day when I first started reading the Dhammapada years ago and it, it, ha- it, it was very inspirational to me, the flow of it and how things build. And, and you kind of unpacked it for us. But if you just read it, like you read it and, and read it and read it, all the chapters, they each, all the metaphors build, and, and there is, the, you said it had its own teaching. It has its own logic also. So I'm really glad you brought that in to give the flavor of just going through the whole, um, a, whole ver- a whole verse and then or a whole chapter, and then the chapters build on each other uh, as well. And I, what came up for me at, at the end of the day was how, um, is how much this is a, it has a, its own flavor too, you said it has its own tea, but its flavor of this poetic and very down-to-earth, basic, met, and also metaphorical way of, of of showing us the eightfold path, I mean, it's it's all in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the all the path elements are here, but they're kind of expanded and amplified. In there. Yeah. So that really came through through <clears throat> your. Great. Good. Good. Thank you. Please. I just wanted to say I appreciated that that we had this day to really focus on this. You know, I've had this for years and I love it and I've looked through it and kind of picked at it and seen pieces of it but I've not spent a day like this mm-hmm. together with a group, a community of ourselves so we can hear this and I, and I appreciated how you grouped things and like Victor I was looking well, where'd this come from but, but as you did it actually helped to see things that way mm-hmm. so thank you Good. Good. Tony I had a question about that very last verse sure because in there, there's the idea of perfecting all perfections. Mm-hmm. So is that in reference to the paramis? I wouldn't necessarily think so. I think it's just a statement of, of um, awakening without, without residue, without um, nothing left undone. That's how I would take it. But that's, there's no rule there. If you like the paramis, you could. <laughs> does, is the poly, does the poly say paramis? Oh, uh, I don't know. 
it really is at the end, isn't it? No. Sava Vasita Vasanam, which is the final perfection by having lived the religious life. So, no, it's, it's, parami is not one of the words. Thanks. Thank you, Tony. Oh. Um, I really enjoy today your understanding and also your uh, depth of knowledge. Well, thank you. Uh, it's really enlightening. Thank you. And thank you guys for your attention. January, I believe so. There may be, yes, I believe there is, there is, yeah. There's, there's flyers and also for gills. If anyone would like to stay behind and help tidy up a little bit, that would be well appreciated. And um, just a reminder, if you do uh, write a check, it should be written to the Sati Center as opposed to IMC. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>